0: Amen. Good morning. Can we just praise God one more time this morning? Thank you, Lord. We give you praise and glory. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Mm, God, you're good. Your mercies are new every morning. And boy, do we need them every morning. Turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to the book of Romans I hope you are blessed today. If you're not, I hope you're blessed by the time you leave. How's that? Did you bring your Bibles with you this morning? If you didn't bring your Bible, did you bring your phone with your Bible app on it? If you didn't bring your phone with your Bible app on it, do you have a phone? Do you know how to download apps? Download the Bible app. It's a good app. It has devotionals on there. You can set up little reminders, you know, I have a reminder every morning, time to pray it pops up from my app, because I don't know if it's just busyness or age, but I need reminders, you know, probably a bit of both, amen. We're going to start in Romans chapter 7. Yeah, NLT is fine, Sean. That's good. I usually read out of ESV, but I was studying yesterday using my Bible app, and I was in the NLT, and there was a, a phrase that I have read so many times that in a slightly different translation hit me between the eyes. And sometimes you need that, amen. All right, so we're going to jump through here a little bit. I just want you to stick with me, Okay. Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Now, dear brothers and sisters, Paul writes, you who are familiar with the law, don't you know that the law applies only while a person is living? Jump down to verse 4. So, my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. And now you are united with the one who was raised from the dead. As a result, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. When we were controlled by our old nature, sinful desires were at work within us. And the law aroused these evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds resulting in death. But now, we have been released from the law. For we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. Amen. We're going to stop there for just a minute. Candy brought a word forth for this year. The word was transformation. and Some people took that with excitement. I think some people took that with some trepidation. Transformation is difficult. Because transformation doesn't just simply mean change. Transformation means that what was there has been completely transformed into something that is unrecognizable from what it was before. Well, as a little kid, I liked to watch the very violent cartoon show called The Transformers. Since then, they ruined my childhood with really terrible movies. But in that show, you had something that looked like a robot, and then it looked like a car. These two things aren't at all exactly the same. Transformation doesn't mean that you change a little bit. It doesn't mean that your hair becomes a different color. Some people talk about, you know, when you get in good shape, you're transformed. No, you're just skinnier. You're still you. There's just less of you. Sometimes there's more of you. just depends upon how strict you are. I've been going to the gym every single morning for the last two weeks now. Y'all are supposed to applaud and congratulate me at that point. Thank you. I didn't see any of y'all next to me on the treadmill at 7 in the morning when it was 17 degrees when I got out of my truck at Gold's Gym. And you know what? And I'm working diligently, and I've done this before. I lost a lot of weight. I lost over 100 pounds. I know how to do this. But the truth is, as I got healthier, and I got stronger, and I got lighter, and there was less of me, and my clothes fit looser, and I had to buy new stuff, none of that was a transformation. It was just simply a change. And too often, when we hear the word transformation in our lives, that is what we think. That is what we hear, that we are going to change. But no, the calling this year is not to change. It is to be transformed to be different than who you are or who you were, to be who you have been created to be in Christ. Amen? And this is what Paul is talking about. He's saying, now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law. We've been transformed and there's a new way of living in the Spirit. Now, verse 7, I want you all to hang with me a little bit because this is interesting. Paul writes here in Romans, and and I've said this repeatedly, I think Romans is one of the most powerful letters that Paul wrote. (coughs) It's like his magnum opus. It is the most in-depth theological book that was written in the New Testament as one of the epistles. And what he is saying is deep, and we have to get a hold of what it means. In verse 7, he says, well, then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said, You must not covet. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. Now, I want you to pay attention to something because there's a point to the way Paul is writing here in that he is saying sin is an active thing in our lives. He is not using sin in a passive term. Do you get that? Sin's not like gum on the sidewalk that you accidentally step on and now it's stuck on your shoe. Oh, no, I have sin stuck on me. No. It's more like a lion that creeps in the shadows and waits for you to pass so that it can pounce upon you. It is actively pursuing you. And in this particular case, he is saying sin is actively using the law, what we know we should and should not do, in order to try to corrupt our desires to do the things that are sinful. If there were no law, sin would not have that power. Did y'all catch that? He's saying if the law of God, which is good, did not exist, then there would be nothing for sin to corrupt. And that's a very important aspect that we need to understand because it is saying that the law is good, but the law has a consequence, and that consequence is that we know what's right from wrong. And because we know what's right from wrong, we have a duty to do what is right, but we are tempted to do what is wrong. Verse 9, at one time I lived without understanding the law, but when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to my life and I died. So I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. I want you to consider who's writing this. This is Paul the Apostle. He's Saul of Tarsus. He was a Pharisee. He was a man that wholeheartedly from his youth, studied the scriptures and wanted to uphold the law. So much so that when Jesus came and people began to follow the way, he persecuted the church because he felt that is his duty. That was his duty in faith. So many people have that same misunderstanding. They think that to serve God means that you persecute those who sit in darkness. Those that are wrong, those who disagree with you, that is not the gospel. The gospel is love. The gospel is not violence. The gospel is truth. The gospel is light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And so Paul on his way to Damascus, got knocked literally off of his high horse, and he was shown the truth as he encountered who Jesus truly was, and he was blinded only later to be given his sight again and to be changed, to be transformed from Saul who persecuted the church to Paul the apostle who wrote most of the New Testament. And it is this person who studied the Scriptures, who was very dutiful in everything that he read and everything that he did to live by. He's the one who is saying to us that that law brought to him in his life, spiritual death. In verse 11, sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me. But still the law itself is holy, and its commands are holy and right and good. But how can that be? Did the law which is good cause my death? course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's good commands for its own evil purposes. Now, verse 14, I want you to pay very close attention to, because this is what got me yesterday. So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me. For I am all too human, a slave to sin. The title of my message this morning is, The Trouble is With Me. Wednesday night, if you were here, we had a wonderful time in our Bible study. We were reading and studying, was it in Ephesians that we were in? We were talking about this this issue of sin in our lives, but there's very practical instruction that Paul is writing to the Ephesians. Now I have stood up in this pulpit and I have told you repeatedly the absolute truth that Jesus Christ is the author of your faith. He is the beginner. He is the ender. He is the author, the finisher. He is the one who gives you the faith to believe in Him. There's nothing that we do to earn our salvation at all. We are saved by grace, by the mercy of God, He's called out to us. If you will listen, He's calling out and He's saying, I need you to invite me into your heart because sin has come in and it has robbed you of your life. But there is an answer because Jesus has paid the price for that sin. His blood has been shed so that your sin could be covered, so that it is forgotten so that when the enemy tries to bring it up to the Father, this person did this, that, and the other, those acts no longer exist. They are gone. You know, the Bible says that the, that the blood of Christ scatters our sins as far as the east is from the west. And if you know how a globe works, it, it's a big circle. It's a globe, right? It's a sphere. And if you start... At the middle, and you go east far enough, it becomes west. And if you go west far enough, it becomes east. It means that it's gone. As far as, as the east is from the west is infinite. There's no end to that. His forgiveness is total. So your salvation is secured. But you still have a responsibility in this in that you must resist sin. This is why Paul says here, the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me. I hear people all of the time, almost all of my life, even before I was Christian. When I was just a CNE Presbyterian, that means Christmas and Easter. That's when we went to church, okay? I would hear people complain about the failings in their life or the result of the enemy tempting them. You know, it's the devil's fault. Listen, the enemy did his work, but it's your fault. That's the whole point of God's forgiveness. We're the ones at fault. There's no scapegoat here until Jesus comes, and then he becomes that scapegoat. You don't get to blame the enemy. He's doing his job. Do your job. Your job is to resist him. We're going to get into that. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. But we have to stop blaming every single fault that we have that the devil made me do it. You ever hear that? It's like a four-year-old. My children used to do that, right? Lucas, well, Sean made me do it, or Christian made me do it. Sean was like, Yeah, I'm like, No. In fact, it was funny. I was sharing something with my coworkers at work. Sometimes I feel like I'm a dad at work. Does anyone else, anyone else at work feel like you're like the parental figure? You know? And something happened, and, and something was broken, and something got messed up, and they said, Oh, it was an accident. And I looked at them, and I said, I'm going to tell you exactly the same thing I tell my children when they say it was an accident. That doesn't mean that you weren't at fault. Are y'all hearing me? Okay. Teenagers in the room, are you listening? Wait. Adults in the room, are you listening? An accident doesn't mean you weren't at fault, it means that it wasn't intentional. There's a big difference. Being absolved of blame is not because, oh, it was an accident. You're not absolved of nothing. You accidentally did something, it's on you. And I always tell my children, you know how accidents happen? Carelessness. Carelessness is why accidents happen. We are careless too often with our spiritual lives. We come here to church, and I'm so glad to see all of you smiling faces. Smile, smile, smile. Okay, some of you stop smiling. Maybe. I'm so glad to see you this morning. But we come here too often on a Sunday morning, We come to church and we worship and we hear the word and we feel good, but then we leave and we just kind of like stumble through life. We don't take the precautions to understand that sin is actively trying to take us out, actively trying to pull us away from God, actively trying to destroy you. See, if you have an understanding of the context within which you truly exist, then you'll understand the pitfalls and the snares that surround you all day long. See, we walk through the city, we walk through our homes, we walk through our neighborhoods like there's not a care in the world. We should be walking through it like we're in the middle of the African savanna covered in steak in a lion refuge or something, you know what I mean? because that's the reality of the spiritual situation that we find ourselves in. You may not see with your eye what's going on, but if you understand in the Spirit, you will begin to understand that there are snares all around. And why do we constantly fall prey to them? Because the problem is with me. I put myself in situations to do things. Let's continue reading some of what Paul said here. 7.15, he says, I don't really understand myself. See if this hits home for anybody. I don't really understand myself for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate but if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is I, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. You hear this? There's that active understanding of sin in your life. I've discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Now, I want to correct something here is how most people read this. Most people read this as Paul speaking in this example in the current, in the present for himself. And he's not. He's speaking in the past. He's giving his life as an example to the struggles that we have that he had in the past. Do you understand? He's not talking about his current reality as he's writing. He's talking about everything that led him up to that moment on the road to Damascus that as he even studied the law and put himself to it to be a people of God's Word and to see it manifested in his life, to follow the law as closely as possible, he still struggled, even though he knew right from wrong. How many of you know right from wrong, and yet you still do what is wrong knowing what's right? Or you know what's right, and you still don't do it. It's like those cartoons. Do you remember the cartoons Like like, uh, Pluto would, like, be tempted to do something good or something bad, and there would be like an angel Pluto on one shoulder and a devil Pluto on the other shoulder, you know. That's funny, isn't it? Also, why is Pluto Mickey's dog, but Goofy's Mickey's friend? Anyways, but that's 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 a cartoon. The reality of it is, we don't need anything going on. We know we will study. We are taught, even from a young age, what's right and what's wrong, and yet we will still do the opposite of these things, right? So Paul is saying that this is human nature. I dealt with it, and he's using himself as an example because he's saying to the church in Rome, and you deal with it too. Just as many of you nodded your heads in here, I deal with it too. But Paul is using all of this as an example in the past because he says in verse 25, Let's go back a little bit verse 24. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is? In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. You cannot reason yourself into the kingdom of God. Just like if you are talking to somebody, you cannot reason them into believing in Jesus Christ. It is a gift of faith. Now, God calls us. Jesus comes, and he knocks on the door of our heart because every single one of us is in the condition that Paul is talking about. We are all in need of transformation. And so he's calling. He's knocking on our door. And you can talk till you're blue in the face with somebody. And it doesn't matter what color they are. It doesn't matter what color their hair is. It doesn't matter what they identify is as. It doesn't matter if they seem absolutely normal or completely bizarre off the wall, none of your arguing till you're blue in the face is what's going to make a difference in their life because it's not what made a difference in your life. What made a difference in your life is at some point you hit that moment where you struggled and you're like, I don't want to struggle anymore. And like Paul, you said, I don't know why. I know what I'm supposed to do, but I still cannot do it. Why? And finally, you said, okay, I'm going to answer that knock that's been at the door of my heart. That's how it was for me. I didn't get saved in a church. I love sharing this with pastors. I remember I was on TBN once. I have so many comments about TBN and opinions. If you want to know about them, you can ask me later. But I was on TBN once, and I'm talking to a local pastor, and I'm sharing with him how I got saved, and how I got saved was not in a church. I didn't get saved watching television. There was no telethon that spoke to me. I was in high school, and I was struggling with my own sin, my iniquity, and I saw the destruction that it had done in my family's life, and I was like, I don't want to follow this example that's been set before me, but in all of my struggles, knowing what's, what the path that's ahead, I haven't been able to turn from it. It's like you're on a car, and the steering wheel is locked, and I cannot move from where this is, and I don't know what to do. Now, this was my sophomore year of high school, and in my uh, eighth grade of high, uh, junior high, middle school, whatever y'all call it nowadays, and, and my freshman year of high school, I remember I started identifying as an atheist, not because I actually didn't believe that there was a God, but because it was the 90s, and it was cool to be an atheist, and so... You know, and you all laugh, but I'm telling you, there's a lot of that young people are dealing with right now for that very same thing. Oh, it's cool to be this, that, or the other. Okay, well then, you know, I'll do that because I want to be with these guys in the in-group. The oh, you're an atheist? Yeah, I'm an atheist too. I stopped going to church. I don't believe in God. But that wasn't true because I would stand there at night and I would look at the stars and I would go, there's no way that there's not a God I have enough mass three feet above my butt to contemplate with my mind to go, there is no way that all of that's accidental. There's no way that I'm accidental. I I paid attention enough in biology to understand about cell division and how things multiply. And things don't just go from having a single cell to having a ton of cells and then there's nothing in between. I reasoned enough with the mind that God had given me to go, at least I know this truth. But those Truths were not enough to free me. You hear me? Recognizing that there was a God despite my confession to the otherwise was not enough to free me. Contemplating the universe was not enough to free me. Enjoying nature and His splendor was not enough to free me. And having it in my mind that I don't want to go down this path was not enough to free me. And so I've told you all this story before. I dove into my closet, which should have killed me right then and there, if anyone's seen a teenage boy's closet before. And I found this New Testament Bible that had been given to me when I left 8th grade by a bunch of Gideons that were standing on the sidewalk the very last day of school handing out Bibles. And if you've ever seen a young person, you'll know that they'll take whatever you hand out. Swag, you know, it's free. We didn't call it that in the 90s, but free stuff, sure, I'll take it. And I put it in my backpack, and I never cracked it open until that day. I didn't know where a Bible was in my house, but I found that New Testament, and I prayed the prayer in it, and you know what happened? Nothing. As I knelt weeping on my dirty bedroom floor with that little orange New Testament that I still have, there was no thunder, there was no lightning, the earth did not shake. But I found peace. and I began to change slowly. I remember going back to school. I wasn't even going to a church. I didn't have a church to go to, and I, my, friends, my friends noticed. I just kind of stopped cussing. No one had to tell me to stop cussing. I'd always known I shouldn't have been cussing. You know you shouldn't be cussing. I don't have to tell you that. I don't have to stand up here and tell you what you shouldn't be watching or what you shouldn't be listening to or what you shouldn't be reading or where you shouldn't be going or what you shouldn't be saying. You know. And when you don't know, the Holy Spirit tells you. So I just stopped cussing. And I began transforming. And the Lord led me to a church and connect all the dots, and now I'm here talking to you. It's a lot of dots. But there's this moment in our lives where we have to die so that we can live. I want you to turn with me to Jeremiah. Not to that, Jeremiah, in your Bible. (laughs) Everyone turn to Jeremiah. We're going to ask him to. (laughs) I want you to turn to chapter 29. Last week, our pastor preached a message entitled, But God. And one of the things I want to tell you as an example of my life, just as Paul used an example from his life, is that I didn't have the best childhood. And some of you can relate to that, and some of you had wonderful child uh, childhoods. Some of you had wonderful parents and a wonderful environment to grow up in. I did not. My mother was a drug addict and an alcoholic who was probably dealing with undiagnosed mental illness and struggling in poverty as a single parent who had escaped an abusive marriage and was trying to raise two boys on a teacher's salary. It was tough. And I have one other sibling. I have a younger brother who suffers from Schizophrenia that developed while he was a teenager after he began to experiment with drugs. Everyone thinks all of these drugs are perfectly fine. It doesn't matter if you call it legal or not. There's dangers associated with that. I'd like, if anyone's interested, to share with you all of the studies that show marijuana use in uh, teenage years and early adulthood can cause an onset of schizophrenia because that's what they diagnosed my brother with is drug-induced schizophrenia. And he has struggled his entire adult life. He is now in his 40s. He lives in Floresville in a group home. I go to visit him and pay his bills every single month, and they take very good care of him, and they treat him like family. I'm very grateful to have found that place because I was at my wits, and I didn't know what to do with him. But one of the things, I say all that to say this. I was the bad kid, and he was the good kid. Okay? I was the one that didn't clean his room, dressed sloppily, never listened to my mother, stayed out too late, spent too much money, all of that stuff. And he was the straight-A student who was prim and proper and looked preppy and took care of all of his stuff and was very clean and listened to everything mom said. If she gave us money, he brought back change. He was the good kid. I was not the good kid. And we were both in the exact same environment in fact, he struggled with my mom smoking our entire life more than I did. Interestingly enough, she quit right after I moved out of the house and I was like, "Are you for real? Like was I that stressful? Seriously?" Cuz I hated it. I hated going to school and smelling like smoke and everyone would think I smoked because I smelled like smoke and I had long hair and so they're like, "Are you holding?" and I'm like, "Dude, no." You know. And at at some point I got saved and God began to redeem my behavior. But my brother, because of a different path he took, suffered what he has suffered in the entirety of his life. And when you were preaching last week, I'm reminded of that regularly. But God. But by the grace of God, that would have been me. But by the grace of God, I could have suffered immense things. I had every single reason and excuse in the world to do anything I absolutely wanted, given the environment that I was in. But God. Amen? Jeremiah chapter 29, you may know this scripture, starting in verse 11, says, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. "They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. This was part of my devotional this past week. If you look for Him wholeheartedly, you will find Him. Now, what's interesting, if you study any of this, if you go back and you read what's going on in the context of this, the children of Israel have walked away. And there's a correction coming. There's great, horrible things that await them. God is going to cause their enemies to rise up against them. But in the midst of that, he's saying, these horrible things are going to happen, but if you look for me, you'll find me because I have great plans for you. I want you to prosper. I want good things. You have gone the wrong way. But if you look for me, I will find. You will find me. We shared this Wednesday night when Candy and I were youth pastors. Sometimes young people would come up to us and they would say, hey, you know, I'm kind of curious about some of these other faiths, particularly kids that were raised in the church. I was not raised in the church, you know. But I studied some other faiths, too, because I was curious. And here's the truth. Here's what I'm going to tell you. God is so big that if your heart is truly set on finding him, you will find him. If you are truly set on finding the truth, you will find it. Now, if you are set on finding an excuse, if you are set on finding some justification, you will find that. But if you are looking for God, you will find God. He is too big to miss. So when we set our heart upon Him, we will find Him. I want you to turn now to the book of James Chapter 4, starting in verse 6, James writes, and again, this is in in the context of writing an epistle to people that are not following the path and the commands that God has, has given them. They are not following the way. And James writes in verse 6, and he gives grace generously, as the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God and and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. You know, every time I hear this scripture, everyone reads the first part of verse 8 and not the second part of verse 8. All I ever hear is, come close to God, and He will come close come close to you, which is the absolute truth. But the context is, wash your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts. Your loyalty is divided. You are trying to serve God and the world at the same time. Stop it. Stop it. Be purposeful in your spiritual walk. Pursue God with purpose and passion. I was sharing with John earlier this week. He came to visit me, and uh it's cold. You know, it's been real cold. I got up this morning and my, my phone said, uh, snow. I was like, what? Get thee behind me, weather app. Um, and, you know, here's the problem with it being cold like this. We're just not built for it down here. We're not used to this environment. Our infrastructure is not made for this environment. And this, the same is true at, at my job. You know, we sell high-end musical instruments. A lot of them are made of solid wood. And I was sharing with John, there's this, this contraption we have, and it's a humidifier. Anyone know what that is? It adds humidity to the air. And I have had it on full blast, refilling it constantly for the last two weeks. And the reason is because it's so cold and we have the heat going on, it gets really dry. Has anyone noticed your skin getting chapped, your lips getting chapped? It's because it's dry. There's less moisture in the air. And so you feel dry, and your skin begins to crack, and you have to use lotion and so forth. Well, we use humidifiers to keep the guitars and the pianos happy, because guitars, they still want to be trees, and they are sensitive to temperature and humidity. Now, the the absolute perfect point for a guitar to be in is between 40% and 60% relative humidity. And I've walked in that room where we have a digital hygrometer and it has said 10%. That's bad. And so we've got this humidifier working constantly over time trying to get as much moisture in the air as possible to get that back up into the 40 or the 50% range so that these guitars will be happy. And here's what I'm going to tell you. I need you all to just listen because this example is very important. When these guitars and really any kind of musical instrument that's made of wood, sits in a low humidity environment for too long, the wood begins to shrink, and eventually it cracks. Keep going, and it will fall apart. The structure inside will begin to unglue, because the pieces of wood begin to warp and shrink and split and move away from one another because they are not existing in the environment that they were designed to exist in. Are you hearing me? You cannot go through life thinking that you will get by apart from God. In Genesis, it says that God created us in His image. It says, let us create man in our image. Body, soul, and spirit. And here, what we see Paul writing here in Romans is that the true path to victory is in Christ and in death in Christ. That you are created not to live this life as you are, but to be transformed, to be transformed into a creature that is part of this body of Christ. Not just you have church membership, it means spiritually. You must go through a death to yourself and be resurrected in Christ and live in that life. To give up your identity and understand His identity for you. For I know the plans I have for you, He says. You have to take up your cross daily. That's what Candy said in her message, daily, not once, not just pray a prayer once, every single day. And here it is, church, it's just a moment. It's a moment in your day. It's a moment when you open your eyes and you see that you've lived through another night to see another sun. And in that moment, you need to cry out to the sun. Crucify my flesh, O Lord. Let me take up my cross yet again and follow after you. That I will find victory in your spirit. Victory over the law. Victory over the death. What did he say at the beginning of Romans chapter 7? The law only applies to the living, Carmen. The law only applies to the living. It doesn't apply to the dead. That's what we're called to be, church. We've got to be dead to this world. We cannot serve two masters. Look at us finishing each other's sentences, Yvonne. It's almost like a scripture. <laughs> you cannot serve two masters. You have to choose. And the choice is, is really a simple one. It's life or death. You can choose to live a life here and, and have death eternal Or you can choose to die to yourself and live eternal in Him. And here's the great thing about it. The path that He has set before you is greater than the path that you have set for yourself. His plans that He has for you are greater than the plans that you have set for yourself. There is no design that you can come up with that is better than the design that He has. For if you allow Him to be the architecture of your life, you'll realize that His plans have been so great, bigger than you could have imagined from the beginning. There are challenging things, but there is nothing that you can't overcome as long as you have your hand in His hand, and you are going step in step with Jesus Christ. That is what we are called to. Now, we finished chapter 7. I just want to read the beginning of chapter 8, and we will close. He says in verse 1, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus Christ. And because you belong to Him, the power of the life-giving Spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. No more do I want you to identify with the old Paul when he's writing about his life as Saul. When he said, I don't do what I want to do and I do what I don't want to do. He was giving a past tense example that is not our reality as a Christian. Our reality as a Christian is that we are not trying to figure out with our minds. It is not simply based upon our reason. We instead have a revelation in our heart by the Holy Spirit that's within us. And the law is gone because we're dead. It doesn't apply to us. And there's freedom in Christ. There's no condemnation anymore because you belong to him. The power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin and death. And John wants to say something. Galatians 2.19, For though the law... I for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I li- now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. You can never do enough to earn your salvation. Now I want you, church. I want you to grab a hold of this this year. This is a year truly of transformation. And I don't want that to be true of just you, but I want that to be true of everyone in your circles. You each have a circle of influence. You know what that means? It means the people that you have in your life, family and friends and coworkers and neighbors that you have influence over, and God has put you into these people's lives for a particular reason. And as you are transformed, God wants to transform others through you to speak truth in love, to bring life to those who sit in darkness. That does not happen through judgment and hate. It is not your job. The law has brought death to them. You need to bring life to them by bringing Christ to them so that they can die to who they are and they can be risen up into who they are in Christ as a new creation. Amen? Amen. You can clap. That is good. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. So let us endeavor this year. Tomorrow when you wake up, I want you to do this. I want you to open your eyes and recognize that moment. That's your moment. That's your moment of decision every single day. It can be hard. Listen, going to the gym is really hard. I have a really great excuse right now. Lucas has to get up early and go to football at school, and I have to drop him off at 7. And so I'm like, okay, well, I might as well go work out and I still try to talk myself out of it, Kim. I still try to talk. I'll, I'll just drop him off and go back and get back in bed because I'm tired. I don't have to be at work till like 10. You know, what am I doing up at 6.30 in the morning? But you know, I say to myself, I say, if I just go, even if I don't feel like going, I feel tired. I feel sore. I don't have it in me this morning. You know what? I'll go anyway. If I only do five minutes on the rower. Then I just do five minutes on the rower, and every single time I say that to myself, 45 minutes goes by, and I leave victorious over my flesh. That's just a small thing. But every moment you open your eyes every morning, take up your cross. Choose that day who you will serve, and walk in the Spirit with Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Give Him praise. For those who are watching us online who aren't here with us, I hope that this message has blessed you, whether you're watching it live or at some point in the future. And I pray that you will take that moment. It doesn't have to be a religious practice, it doesn't have to be this big thing. It can be as simple as what happened to me. If you want victory in your life over the destruction that lay before you, all you have to do is cry out to God. He's already knocking on the door of your heart. All you have to do is cry out to him and say, I need forgiveness for my sin. Please forgive me and come into my heart and be my Lord, Jesus. And he will save you and he will set you free. Thank you for so much for joining us. Make sure to follow us and join us again. Amen. Amen.